Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Everybody could take a seat. I've got a few uh, announcements for you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Ben Evelsizer. I'm a new member of the <laughs> Heights Finance team that operates behind the scenes and never seen, except for today, apparently. My first task is to do some announcements for you guys. Um, <clears throat> I want to remind everybody that October is Pastor Appreciation Month. Uh, every year we start a fund to collect some additional givings to collect into a pool to give gifts to our pastors in appreciation of what they do for us. Um, David, Corey, and Jeff will all get something once we get um, the fund going. Um, you can give any of the normal ways. We do just ask that uh, you go on church center. Or if you do cash or check, to make sure you clearly mark it for pastor appreciation so we know to put it in the appropriate spot. Um, I also encourage everybody to just uh, do small things for our pastors this month. Um, they do a lot for us throughout the year. So whether it's just uh, shooting them a text or giving them a handshake saying thank you or buying them coffee. They all love Verona. So get as much coffee for them as you want. Um, but they do a lot for us, so we just want to show our appreciation to them um, for all that they do. Um, some of the other announcements, uh, October 17th, John Ryan, the regional director of Acts 29, is going to be a guest speaker here. Um, and then also on the 17th, uh, I assume following the second service, will be the newcomer hangout, um, where anyone who's new to Heights can learn about the vision and mission here at Heights. Um, and then lastly, the Heights student paintball was rescheduled. I uh, did not give it a date, so just uh, be aware that it was rescheduled, and uh, someone will be reaching out to you guys about it. So and that's all I have for you this morning, Corey. Good job, man. Great, strong work. Hey, if you all could stand with me for the reading in God's Word. It's a terrifying place to be sometimes, but you've got to start sometimes. So, um, the reading in God's Word today, 1 Samuel <clears throat> chapter 18, uh, verse 6 through 16 is where we are. So, let's read the, let's hear this together. Here we go. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and his saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And so I, David, from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. 
as he did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is the reading of God's word. You may take a seat. Uh, Let me kick us off with this, uh, just a little bit of prayer here for a moment. Get myself centered, get us centered on this text. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that we have a place to be able to come and worship. Uh, God, we thank you. Uh, Even for new leaders, new leadership, as Ben comes up to pray, God, we're thankful just that we get to be a church that's constantly multiplying and making disciples. God, thank you for your favor in that regard. God, I pray uh, for us today. Uh, This topic is not easy. Envy, jealousy is not easy to sit in, not easy for me uh, to sit in. And so, God, I I pray that you would unearth just some real sin for us. Uh, Show us a big, beautiful, high picture of who this Jesus is and how he sets us free uh, from the envy that does come, from the comparison game, from discontent, from fear, from anger, from uh, all these things that a very real enemy wants us to feel, God. And we feel them daily. Uh, We might be feeling them now. Uh, The car right here might have led to some anger and some discontent. And so, God, help us to be real. Help us to be transparent. As always, I pray for my own emotions. God, I pray you slow my thoughts, uh, my mind, steady my heart, my anxieties. Help me to be focused on your word and on your spirit. I'm going to dig in where necessary and step back. I pray the same for those who are here, Lord. I pray, as always, that we might lose track of time together as a family. We all pray this in the sweet name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. So if you're new to Heights, let me take a minute and just welcome you. My name is Corey. I'm one of the uh, pastors here on staff. I get to be your teaching pastor for the next couple of weeks. And so I want to just take a minute and say thank you uh, for being here, for making this a priority. Uh, We're currently in a series called Lest We Turn, where we spent the majority of the year, almost the whole year in the Old Testament, looking at the difference between what happens whenever we turn to God and what happens whenever we turn away from God. And so uh, kind of what we're sitting in right now in this last week and this week is this, this tension that comes whenever you walk out godly desire versus this tension that comes whenever you walk out something called envy that I got to set in uh, all week. And so if you have been with us, you know we're looking at the story of King Saul, who was the people's appointed king, and then the rightfully appointed king, King David. And so if you remember, if you were here last week, if you remember from last week, and I'll reference this again at the end to help us understand how this text flows. But if you remember um, from last week, Pastor David, not King David, but Pastor David took us through the text from last week, and it was about Jonathan and David, the King David. And so Jonathan, who's the rightful heir to the throne, he's the son of King Saul, has surrendered in that moment and in that text. If you remember, he gave up his robe, he gave up his armor, then the text said he even gave up his sword. And what we saw in that moment was godly desire, not envy, but the opposite. We saw godly desire. So Jonathan, the rightful heir, is surrendering himself to King David, God's anointed, God's appointed King David. And what we see then in godly desire is this. Godly desire, uh, in effect, says more for you, if you're a note taker, more for you, less for me. When we have a godly desire, it's more for you, it's less for me. More for you, less for me. And so Jonathan is turning to God, lest we turn. He's turning to God, and in effect, turning to King David, and he's saying, more for you. 
more for you. Here's my robe, right? Here's my armor. Here's even my sword. Here's everything that I have. And he's given that over to the rightful king. Whereas the opposite of that, what we're going to see this week as we get into envy is more for me and less for you. Envy is more for me, less for you. It's the exact opposite. And so this week we see Saul's envy. Saul does not surrender to King David. Rather, he finds himself in a comparison game that is fueled by resentment. And that's how we're going to define envy for today. That's how we're going to define envy. So Ms. Debbie, if you could put that up for me. Envy is the inability to enjoy what someone else has because of comparison and being unable to enjoy what you have because of resentment. I'll give you a minute to set in this. It took me about two days to wrap my mind around that. Envy is the inability to enjoy what someone else has because of comparison and being unable to enjoy what you have because of resentment, which is then I have a a big idea as I give every time I preach, a big idea for us to make that definition even smaller. Envy is ignited by comparison and fueled by resentment. Envy is ignited by comparison and fueled by Resentment. So if godly desire is more for you, less for me, envy is more for me, right? It's all about me. There's a change in thought that happens there. And what's tough about this is this, before we get into this, what's tough is this, comparison isn't always bad. Like if you think about comparison, comparison can actually be really good. Comparison can bring you a lot of joy. Like we should, as Christians, be comparing ourselves to Jesus and looking at Jesus and seeing what he does in different situations and different occurrences, how he responded, how he looked to the rest of culture. Vocationally, it's pretty healthy for you to walk out comparison, right? If you want to excel in your vocation, it's okay to compare yourself to other employees or to maybe a position that you have in mind and think about like, what do I need to do to get to this position or this place in life. So comparison isn't always bad. What I would say then is when comparison, okay, whenever comparison is met with resentment, okay, when it's met with anger, that's what we would call envy. And so it's these two things, just to be clear, comparison and resentment colliding together. And in that, then envy begins to rob you of your joy of life. And not only of your life, but envy will rob you from experiencing the joy in someone else's life as well. It makes you blind to what is directly in front of you, as well as what's happening in the lives of other people that you're comparing yourself to. Envy is ignited by comparison, fueled by resentment. There's three ways that we're going to unpack this today, okay? First is this. Envy is subtle. Note takers is for you, for you on Facebook. Your time to shine here. Envy is subtle. Uh, Envy leads to slavery. And then we're going to look at how do we escape envy. Sound good? All right, I'm trying to be clear on this. It was tough to set in. Envy is subtle. You ready? Stay ready. All right, verse 6. Here we go. Verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet who? King Saul. Okay, so they're there to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And they sing this. It's really, it's a Hebrew poem. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very, what? Angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Well, the answer to that is going to be yes, eventually, isn't it? And Saul eyed David, that means wanted to kill him, from that day 
on from that day forward. And so let's kind of enter into this narrative together, right? We have this King Saul who actually isn't the king according to God. It's the people appointed him as king and God allowed it to happen. And then we have the shepherd boy King David who is actually God's anointed. A man after God's own heart is what the text said. And so they're coming back. King David has killed Goliath. And so naturally, there's a big celebration that's happening. You remember how Pastor David unpacked the killing of Goliath and what he would have looked like, right? And so there's this incredible war that takes place. King David sees, or sorry, David sees great victory. King Saul gets the credit for it. Like who gets the credit for things that go well in the kingdom? The king does. And so these, this whole celebration has happened. These women are coming out. They've written this poem. They have accredited credit where it's due. King Saul has killed his thousands. King David has killed his tens thousands. Even in that song, though, they start with King Saul first, not with David. And they're giving. What that means is they're giving him the credit that is due to him. And yet all Saul can see is how do these people view me in light of who David is? And so there's just this subtle little comparison that begins to sneak into King Saul's life. Comparison is so subtle. It's just a poem. His thousands and his tens. I mean, he still killed thousands of people and led armies to kill hundreds of thousands of people. And yet he cannot see it. This envy, what is happening? What's King Saul saying? He's saying, I need more. More for me. More accolade for me. More praise for me. Less for you, David, but more for me and so envy has set in in this man's life. Tell me this isn't so telling of the human condition. You can do something incredible, right? And then your coworker gets a little bit more praise, and you're like, "Well, I guess I'm worth nothing. I guess that was for nothing, right? No one notices me. No one, right? This is exactly, this is exactly what we do. Envy will keep you from seeing what is right in front of your eyes for you, and also for someone else." And it comes in with just a subtle comparison game. Think about this for just a second if you know a little bit about the Bible. Envy stole the joy of heaven from Lucifer. Like, just think about that. For, for whatever you know about heaven. Envy stole the joy of heaven. Lucifer compares himself to God, grows in resentment towards God, tries to then overthrow God. That did not go well. Right? Jesus says, I saw Lucifer fall like lightning to the earth. Right? It took not milliseconds and it was done. But it began with comparison. It was fueled by resentment. And the, the reality is envy stole the joy of heaven. Like from being in the presence of an eternal and infinite God and an angelic host of 10,000 times 10,000, like singing the praises of the Lord. And yet envy, subtle as it came in, was enough to rob Lucifer from the joy of being in heaven in the presence of God. That's crazy. You think about Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They're in sinless, listen, sinless perfection. I said in our covenant membership class yesterday, some of you would be so bored in the absence of sin, right? Like nothing to fight about, nothing to argue about, nothing to gorge yourself with. You'd be like, this is so boring. Anyway, just sinners in that covenant membership class, you know? <laughs> But envy stole the joy from Adam and Eve from being in sinless perfection. What does what is, what is, what is the serpent tell Adam and Eve? He says, what? He says, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because then you'll become like him. What does he introduce into the story? Comparison. Right? Adam and Eve, they could be like, ah, we're good. We don't need to be like him. But they're like, oh, wait. We're not like him. Comparison. Very subtle. And it leads to resentment. I want to be like him. 
And so creation turns on creator and all hell breaks loose. Sin infiltrates everything that we know. Envy is ignited by comparison. It is fueled by resentment. That's a big idea for the whole thing. Envy keeps you from seeing just what's directly in front of your eyes. It's so subtle. So let me ask, what, what do you think? What do you maybe think envy is keeping you from seeing just right now? Where is envy maybe just robbing you of your own joy? Where do you see yourself like comparing yourself to other people? And in that, do you feel anger? Do you feel that resentment coming or that frustration? Check this out. This is so, it's so subtle. And so uh, just this last week, um, I, I got to go mountain biking in Bentonville, Arkansas. Anybody else ever been to Bentonville, Arkansas? It's the mountain bike mecca of the United States. It's really incredible. I love, I'll take the mountains over the ocean anytime. Anybody else? Yep. Okay, okay, good. So we're all together on that. Ocean sucks, mountain rocks. Okay. And so, play on words there. Um, was oh, yeah, so we go mountain biking. It's super fun. We spent the whole day, six hours, you know, just out mountain biking, having a blast. Simultaneously, uh, as you guys know, we're going through FPU. So FPU, Financial Peace University, is happening in our church. Tons of people are paying off debt. We've paid off all of our debt now, except for a house, which is super cool. And so, um, yeah, thanks. And so we're sitting there, and my friends have blessed me. Like, I, I didn't have to pay for anything to get there. I didn't have to pay to stay there in this incredible Airbnb. They bought me a, brought me, not bought me, brought me a really nice mountain bike. Like, their bikes were around $5,000. Kind of gives you an idea of how much this bike was that they brought me. I got to have incredible conversation. I'm out there. Like, I love being in anything in the woods or in the mountains. I'm out there. It's incredible. It's super fun time. And yeah, Yet, here's what happens. Comparison. Like, well, why don't, how are their wives okay with them buying $5,000 bikes? That was my first thought, right? Andrea's like, no, that ain't going to fly in the Johnson family, right? But comparison happens, right? How is that? How do you guys do that? How do you get to, and then immediately resentment comes. Well, if I were paying off all this debt, I could do that. Resentment. Well, if I didn't give so much money to the church, I could do that. Resentment. And And what happens is this, as subtle as that is, check this out. I, sh- I should be, like, setting in the ignorant bliss of not having any children around me, being outside in the mountains, out in the rocks, having fun, having incredible conversation, hanging out with some of my best friends in the whole world, and yet instead what I do is this, comparison and resentment. And in that, envy robs me in that moment of the joy of incredible friendship, just right in front of my very eyes, robs me of the joy of being out in creation, having a blast, riding around a bike that costs as much as my first car, you know, like, it was a blast. But envy did what? Started with comparison, fueled by resentment, and for about an hour, man, stole my joy that day. It's very subtle, isn't it? So let me ask the question again, like, what do you maybe think in your life, you know, where do you see comparison game coming in, comparison game leading to resentment comparison I don't have that resentment is I could it would be better if I did it leads to resentment just think about it with me what area of your life is envy stealing the joy from seeing what is right and funny for Saul for King Saul God had brought salvation to his people Literally, I mean, killed this Philistine that had killed tons of Israelites. God had brought salvation to the land in that regard. And Saul can only see himself. And it starts so subtle. King David and his ten thousands, me and only my thousands, right? He's over there kind of puffing about that, missing out on everything that God has done. And it's the same for us. Just think about the fall season, ladies. You look over, you see that outfit that she has on that you don't have, right? You, You notice that she just got some low lights, don't act like you didn't notice the low lights, okay? <laughs> Dang, I haven't got my low lights yet, you know? 
I could have if I didn't have these kids, right? It just, dude's no different. It's that season. He gets a new fire pit. He gets a new grill. He gets a new girl. And you do what? You immediately start comparing. Oh, it is fall. Oh, I do need that. I do need to have this. And then resentment begins to set in. It's very subtle. But listen here. It's also very dangerous because it will steal your joy. So what envy is saying is more for me, more for me, more for me, less for you. More for me, less for you. Not only is envy subtle, but it also leads to slavery. And so it's going to get deeper. We'll go a little bit deeper. Envy leads to slavery. Verse 10, Debbie. It says this. The next day, a harmful spirit, which in the original Hebrew is a fearful spirit, from God rushed upon Saul and he raved, or he would actually be prophesied or babbled within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. That's going to go well. But David evaded him twice. <laughs> Throw a spear at me once, shame on you. Throw a spear at me twice, shame on me. That dude should have left, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> King David is not so bright, this young shepherd. In verse 12, Saul, though, Saul was what? Afraid of David because of the Lord, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of only a thousand. He thought, maybe this will kill him. If I can't kill him, maybe this will kill him. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great, that David had great success, Saul stood in, what, fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him. And so it's important to understand whenever the text says in verse 10, a harmful spirit, it actually says a fearful spirit, which helps the rest of that passage then make more sense to us. And so a fearful spirit or a spirit of fear had been rushed, had rushed upon God. That's important because it helps us tie in the whole back half of that package, whatever passage, whenever it mentions uh, King Saul being fearful of David more than three times or three times specifically. A spirit rushed upon Saul, it says in verse 10. And then verse 12, it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. And then verse 15, when Saul saw David's success, Saul stood in fearful awe. And so it's interesting right there just to think about because fear, much like comparison, can also be really positive. Like fear can keep you from doing really stupid things, like skydiving, for example. No need to do that, right? There's no need to feel that exhilarating. You know, you don't need to feel that. Fear keeps me here on the ground where I am safe. Sometimes, though, listen, fear can be an emotion, most certainly. And it's an emotion to keep us safe, fight or flight. Sometimes, as we're seeing here in the text, though, fear can be a spirit. So it can be more than... An emotion. And so if you find yourself regularly anxious, regularly fearful, regularly feeling resentment, you have to ask yourself, are these emotions that I'm feeling to tell me something, or is this a spirit? Is this something else that is coming against me, coming upon me to lead me to be a slave to this fear, to this anger, to this resentment, and maybe even to this comparison, which is where it probably begins. And so envy leads to slavery, specifically to fear. Envy will lead to a spirit of fear, a slavery to fear. The text Saul says that Saul raved, and more appropriately, more appropriately, he babbled. Listen, Saul is so outside of his mind, obsessed with the work that David is doing, it literally leaves him a blubbering fool. 
Like, can you just kind of picture him? He's in his robe, shirtless. That's the way I think about it. He's walking around his big castle, right? And he's like, David and his stupid 10,000, me and my thousand. He's just in there kind of blubbering, kind of bad. He's the king of Israel, okay? They come out to meet him, yet all that scenario was enough to leave him kind of sitting in his recliner complaining about King David, the soon-to-be King David. And so he's just in there, he's kind of blabbering about, blubbering about in the original language. He's not making any sense. He's just pacing back and forth, frustrated, he's angry, he's experiencing fear. Dude, is that not how we feel sometimes whenever we get so encapsulated by our dysfunctional relationship in our life? Like we experience some level of envy and start to experience that resentment. And when you feel that resentment, what happens? When you are wrestling with comparison and resentment, tell me that you can easily shake whoever you're thinking about. There's no way. It does not happen. Whether it be another mom or dad or a friend or a coworker, whoever it is, maybe it's another business owner in the community, something happens, right? And you're like, dang, I wish I had that. Turns to resentment, and what do you do? You sit around and freaking blubber about it. You can't get over the relationship. You fixate on that thing. And then what happens is it leads you to fear. If I don't get this, if I don't get this position, if I don't get this place, if I don't get this thing, then I'm going to lose a large portion of my identity, a large portion of my status, a large portion of my well-being. And then fear will keep you in this reciprocal loop of envy, comparison, and resentment. And so King Saul tries to kill David. And what's so stupid about that is that if King Saul kills King David, it ruins his political career. The whole, all of Israel would be like, what are you doing? This is our hero. How could you kill this man? Yet he tries to pin him to the wall, not once, but twice. And so envy keeps Saul enslaved to the kingship. Saul's identity is wrapped up in being king. It's not wrapped up in God. It's not wrapped up in who we call Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's wrapped up in his position and his status before Israel. And so the very thing that is driving him, the very thing that King Saul wants to hold on to so tightly, listen, he's going to destroy. That's also true for us. This is what envy does, man. It convinces you that you need a thing, you need a relationship, you need a position, you need a status, you need more for you, more for you, more for you, more for you, or more for me, more for me, more for me. And here's the reality. Whenever you continue to cling to this thing that you think you need, here's what you do. You destroy that thing. It, it turns to ashes is what it does. The very thing that you desire most, you destroy. Because you put a weight on it and a pressure on it that it was never designed to bear. Period. Let's, can we get into that? Let's, let's just see how jacked up our hearts are, yeah? We'll start with singles. People, you know, I don't ever preach on singles. Well, watch what you ask for, okay? Because here it comes. <laughs> singles. That is not married, Okay. No spouse, not married in your heart. That's not a thing, okay? You're either married or you're not. So for those of you that are single, that is not married, listen, if your desire to be married comes because you look at everyone else and what they have, you've already put more pressure on a future marriage than it deserves. It's going to turn to ashes before you. If you compare your life to others, to other relationships that you see and in your friends' circles, and, and you find that that comparison that's happening is leading to resentment and kind of fueled by anger, listen, it's going to crush your marriage before you ever walk down the aisle. The very thing that you think is going to save you and bring you identity and status and purpose will be the thing that you turn to ashes, 100%. And you probably see this, like if you're thinking about if, talking to you as a single, you probably see this in your own life. Very practically, what this can look like is that you look at other couples and you find that comparison that's clearly happening, and then what happens is it leads to a little bit of resentment, and then here's what happens next, and here's how you know that I'm, I'm punching your card. 
you don't get over the top angry, you just become a little bit more passive aggressive with those couples. Just the things that you make mention of them being married so they don't have time for you. Or, or the way you talk about, well, I, I, it's because you have kids and I maybe don't have kids. It's just these passive aggressive comments. And what it, that reveals is this. It reveals envy. And so then what happens then is while you're looking at these couples in comparison, maybe you enter into a dating site or your friends try to set you up. Here's also how you know you're dealing with envy. Every person that gets placed before you, male, female, whether it is in real life or on a dating profile, they're always imperfect. There's always something about them. And so not only are you comparing yourself to other relationships, but now you're comparing a potential future spouse or mate to someone that you don't even have in your own life. Like, oh, she wore this and that picture, so she must be this. Or he said this on a profile, so he must be this. And, and all you're doing is juggling discontentment and comparison. And comparison and discontentment and envy is flowing out of that. And the reality is this. You're going to stay single. If you do not repent and run from envy, you will remain single. Now, there's some people that are called to singleness. Praise the Lord. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking specifically about if you are single and you live in a perpetual cycle of comparison and resentment and you find yourself continually frustrated with other married folks and you can't find anyone that seems to fit your agenda or your mindset for who you think you deserve, you've already crushed marriage. Pretty clear? Yeah. So watch what you ask for, singles. Married couples, dude, you already know comparison runs deep in your marriage. Like, you already know it runs deep. Let me ask, has it turned to envy? Is comparison and resentment peeking its head out, maybe in anger? Peeking its head out, perhaps in frustration? Are you envious of his time away from the kids because he gets to leave and go to work? Maybe you're envious of the time that she has with her friends because you don't have any real friendships. Maybe you're envious of his or her hobbies. Maybe you're jealous or envious of the relationship that she, that she gets to have, that the kids, whenever she comes home, they come running to her, but they don't come running to you. So comparison isn't always bad, is it? But comparison, whenever it's met with resentment, is revealed in envy. And so if you find yourself getting frustrated, just a little bit angry, turning also to a little bit of passive aggressiveness, that is called resentment. And so your comparison has turned to resentment, which then is encapsulated in envy. And ultimately, it leads you to a fear, because what you're going to say is, man, our relationship will just never be like this. Our relationship will never be like that. And what can happen, it can turn to such great dependency on marriage that what you'll do is you'll actually push your spouse away. You'll push your spouse further and further and further away because of envy. The very thing that you want, like this big, beautiful picture that you want, will actually fade and cease to exist because the pressure that you're putting on marriage alone is so much so that it will turn into ash. It's going to destroy it. Parents, envy, listen, comparison game is thick in parenting, isn't it? Yeah, just look at your Facebook post. You have the perfect life. Your kids are always perfect. They don't cry. They always win. Right? No, not at all. Listen, if you try to push your kids to be like someone else's kids so that you can look a certain way, okay? If you push your kids to look like someone else's kids so you can be seen a certain way because of the comparison, because of the resentment, you're going to destroy that relationship. You don't need to push them into more sports. You don't need to push them harder into academics because of someone else so that you can be viewed a certain way through a certain lens. Listen, if you do that, 
you will destroy the relationship. They don't need you to do that. They just need you to be a parent. They don't need you to always be a coach. They don't need you to always be a teacher. They don't need you to use them and their little bodies and their little experiences so that you can feel good about yourself. If you do that, you will turn the relationship to ash and fear will perpetuate. It will become more and more and you'll feel them. You'll feel that you're losing the grip and you're losing the grasp on your own kids because the pressure you put on them is so much so you're going to crumble the relationship. If you want to be fearful of anything in light of your parenting, be fearful of what will happen if you stop discipling them. If you stop pointing them to Jesus, if you stop pointing them to God, if you stop teaching them about the world around them, that should lead you to a right fear. Right? If you want to compare anything, compare how the Father treated the Son and how Jesus treated the disciples, and how his disciples treated those around them. Compare yourselves to that and then let that fuel your parenting. Listen, if your God is small enough that your little fears and comparisons and discontentment can shatter and crush that God, your God already is not big enough to worship. <laughs> He's a very little, very finite God. So what do we do? How do we escape this envy? What do we do? How do we escape envy? I think this is so incredible. Pastor David took us through this uh, last week, which he did a really great job. And I mentioned in the beginning of my sermon today. And so I kept asking, like, how do I, how do I escape envy? What do I do? How do I write this down? And then I just wrote down, oh, yeah, David preached on it. So I'll just reference what he preached. And so for remembrance, uh, for your memory, let me read, let's read real quick what he read to us last night, or last week, and what he preached on. It says this, Debbie, if you could throw it up. Uh, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house to keep him safe, if you remember. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And here's this, verse, verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and of his armor and then even his sword. That's what we'll camp out in a minute. And his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. Not just a thousand, but over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people. And so what we've seen so far for this week is that Saul has only modeled, King Saul has only modeled envy. What he's modeled is more for me, more for me. Cannot fathom that the people would love King David in the way that they've loved King David. But last week helps us understand how to escape envy from this week. And last week we saw Jonathan, the rightful heir of the throne, has modeled good godly desire. What he modeled was more for you, David. I want more for you, less for me. I want more for you. And so what is beautiful about that is this. Jonathan and David are incredible friends, as Pastor David took us through last week. There's a a beautiful covenant that was placed there. They're great friends, yes and amen. But there's something far more happening in that text than what we see and what we just got to see last week. Just one glimpse is not enough. And so friendship alone, listen, does not lead you to surrender the keys to the kingdom. Like they're great friends, but that's not enough. Your best friend in the world is not enough for you to look at him and say, hey, you can have all of the kingdom. I'll get off my throne. You take everything. You can have it just as if it's yours. But here's what does lead to that. A shared understanding of the gospel and a shared understanding that there's a very real, very kingly, very big, incredible Messiah that is 
coming that has appointed this King David to this position. Like it's that understanding that allows the rightful prince, the heir to the throne, to look at King David who's been anointed by God and say, hey, you can have everything that I have. And so whenever Jonathan gives him, gives King David this robe, that is literally, he's giving him the throne. Do you understand that? Like he's given him everything that his father should be given to him. He's given to King David. He's saying, here's my robe. Here's my, my royal garb. It would have the family emblem and seal on it so that everyone knew he was royalty. And he takes that off and he gives it to King Saul. And then he says, not only that, but here's my armor. So the very thing that would have protected his mind, protected his chest, his body, his legs, he's out on the battlefield. Jonathan gives that over to King David. He says, here's my armor. Here's every bit of protection that I have as a warrior. And then what's incredible about it, all of that is this. This is so fun. The stripping away is so beautiful because the text says, and even his sword. Like if the Hebrew used exclamation points, we would put an exclamation point there. And even his sword. And here's what I said in this all week, man. I love this so much. Here's what's so beautiful about this. When you think about medieval times and the surrendering of a sword, listen, that is the absolute last thing you're going to do before you would be put to death on the battlefield. And so for a king, to a rightful heir, a king, royalty, to surrender their sword, that was insane. And so he wouldn't have given, Jonathan would not have given the sword blade first to David, would he? No, he would have surrendered it to him hilt first. And so picture him now. He's stripped himself of his robe. He's stripped himself of his armor. He literally would have been on his knees, bent knee, and he would have been surrendering this handle to David. Look, it's not just a covenant friendship that's happening here. This is a coronation. Like, this is a ceremony where you have God's appointed king. Literally, it said God's anointed king. The word for anointed would be Messiah. This is the Messiah for Israel, to use their language. And you have Jonathan, who's sitting there, not naked by any means, as some would try to view this text, but completely stripped. Emotionally, I would say, bare. Spiritually, bare and naked, you could say. And with his sword out, hilt first, handing it to King David. This is a picture of total and complete surrender to God's anointed one. You guys still tracking with me on that? That's incredible. Like, that is how that begins to kind of, do you see the gospel starting to kind of come out in that? Like, that's how we begin to flee and to run from envy. We look at God's anointed one. We look at the Messiah and we say, that's exactly what you did for me. And so when you think about the cross, and Pastor David nailed this last week. He freaking nailed it in light of the cross. And so whenever he was talking about it, he said, Jonathan stripped his robe no different than Jesus coming in sinless perfection to walk among humanity as the spotless one who then gives us that sinless perfection. Like Jesus surrenders his robe to us so that even in the midst of our sin, the Father can look at us through the lens of the Son. Like while we're deadbeats, you with me? The father looks at me through the sun while I'm over here grumbling on a mountain on a $5,000 mountain bike, having the time of my life, being a baby, babbling no different than King Saul, right? The father looks at me through the lens of the sun because the sun has put his robe over me, put his robe over you and said, you can have my righteousness even when you're not being righteous. Not only that, but then we know that King Jesus has given us his armor. We have the armor of God. That's just the Holy Spirit. 
So the very power that will resurrect King Jesus after he goes to the cross and dies in place of mine and your sin is that power that's going to resurrect him. It's the same power that spoke creation into existence. It is the very power of God that keeps us sealed in the family crest of Christ, Ephesians says, to be sealed in him forevermore. Nothing can ever come against us. We will always have victory in every eternal battle we ever face because we have the armor of the Lord. The king gives us that. And then here's the beautiful, most beautiful aspect of the gospel. The only way that we can receive the robe, the only way that we receive the armor is because King Jesus, Jesus surrendered his sword hilt first to humanity, knowing that we would kill him. Like, think about that. The king of kings comes down, walks in perfection, goes to the cross. The cross is Jesus surrendering his sword hilt first. And he's not surrendering because he thinks that we're going to take it and do all the right things with it. He gives us a sword because we know we're going to crush his body. That's a paradoxical kingdom that we live in. He willingly goes to the cross. None of, none of it is possible. You do not get to receive righteousness. You do not get to receive relationship with Jesus. You do not get to receive the Holy Spirit apart from Jesus, the king, surrendering the sword so that we could sacrifice him. Dude, that's the gospel. And in that, what that means then is that Jesus, while he willingly goes to the cross, he goes to the cross to get what you and I deserve. We deserve the sword, the sword, blade first, not hilt first. We deserve that death. And Jesus takes that death so that we can walk in an astounding amount of victory, quite literally, in royal garb and armor. That's the gospel. Now, what does it have to do with envy? That's how you defeat envy. You don't defeat it. You cannot defeat envy. You're going to leave here and drool over a car in the parking lot, okay? <laughs> Little idolatrous, sinful factory that your heart is, by the time you hit the door, you're going to be mad that someone went to your favorite restaurant. It's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. But here's how you defeat it. The very moment, listen here, the very moment comparison comes in, you look at the cross and you say, Father, take the sword hilt first. I need you to cut everything away from me that I think that I need. I need you to cut all comparisons away from me. I need you to go to work on me. Everything that looks more like me and less like you, you take it out. Like as soon as comparison comes in, as soon as you hear about the new grill, as soon as you see the low lights, you say, Father, I don't need those low lights. You take those low lights. I don't need that. I don't need that car. I don't need that house. I don't need that subdivision. I don't need my kids to do this so that she views me or he views me a certain way. I don't need that bonus so that I can go buy a bunch more crap that I don't need. I don't need any of that. And as soon as comparison, I mean, as soon as it comes, you look at the cross and you remember what Jesus first did for you, surrender. And then you recall your identity in Christ. You say, God, I've given, you've been given, you've given giving me your righteousness. Even in the moment when I desire something far greater than you, I'm no different than Lucifer. I'm no different than Adam and Eve. I'm no different than King Saul. We are the same, them and I. And yet in this moment, I need you with my sword in hand. Take me off my throne. Remove my robe from me. And like a beast, man, cut this thing out of my life because you are the king of kings. Whenever Jonathan surrendered to King David, what he was saying was, command me. That's the same posture we have to have as Christians in order to defeat envy. We recognize, boom, comparison. And we simultaneously say, Father, through the power of the Son, by the power of your Spirit, would you just command me? Let me ask that question then, in, in light of Jesus and the gospel. I mean, is this the Jesus that you claim to profess faith in? the one that's willing to surrender everything to save you. When you find comparison, is that, the, is that a Jesus that you can turn to? If it's not, man, let me invite you to profess faith in that Jesus. 
And check it out. Our church is full of skeptics, full of folks that don't believe. And that's one of my favorite things about our church. It's not just a bunch of seasoned Christians. And so for those of you in the room that, that are skeptics and non-believers, let me invite you to just, let me invite you to a comparison game. Uh, let me invite you to actually dive into this scripture, dive into these 66 books of the Bible and, Bible, and get to know who God and who Jesus is, not just as someone who existed in theory, but as a king. And then I want you to compare this king to every other king, to every other world religion, to every other spirituality, to every other school of thought, to every other philosophy. Compare this king to all of their kings, all of their messiahs, all of their gods, and I just want you to watch this one defend himself. He will stand head and shoulders above every other king, every other professed messiah, and every other professed false god. You with me? Let's stand together for communion. Here at Heights, we take communion together uh, every week as often as we gather, the text says, so we do communion. If you're unable to grab a communion cup and you're a believer, this is a meal that is uh, for you. There's communion cups up uh, in the basket. It's also, if you like to give, tithe during this time, you can do that. You can also do that through uh, Planning Center uh, online. Uh, As we get into communion this time for reflection, let me read this over you. 1 Corinthians says this, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Listen here. On the night that Jesus surrendered to Judas, what, what did he do? He surrenders his sword hilt first to Judas, doesn't he? And to the disciples. And Judas sees to it that Jesus gets executed. So even communion, we're reminded of the text for today. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat it, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so communion for us is not a religious event, even though we do it weekly. Communion for us should be a relational event. It should be an event, a redemptive event, where we come in this time right now and we say, you know what, I do struggle with envy, I do struggle with jealousy and everything else. And so if that is you, and it most certainly is, before you take communion, or if you've already taken communion, let me just invite you to take a minute and reflect and just ask the Lord, God, where, do I, where am I in the comparison game? Where do I find myself experiencing resentment and anger and frustration with people that also share in your image? Uh, Where do I want to be God over those people, a king over those people? And then I just want to invite you in your head, in your mind, out loud, however you want to do it, to say, God, just take my sword. Take me off the throne. Take my robe. Take the sword and cut everything away that keeps distance between us so that all I can see is you. Help me to compare myself to you.